This is unstructured. Hey everybody, today I have Glenn Livingston. He's actually Dr. Glenn Livingston, and he is the author of Never Binge Again. Now, his specialty is on binge eating, but he is also a PhD um, psychotherapist, I believe. Is that correct? Psychologist, yeah. Psychologist, okay. So how are you doing today, Glenn? I am doing really well. I've been looking forward to talking to you, and um, I'm all set up here in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Oh, nice, nice starting to be a decent season there now, right? Yeah, the weather's just about perfect. There's been a cool breeze, and it's like 75, 80 degrees, and I'm cheating the winter by, um, I'm probably going to move down here soon, so. Yeah, hey, why I'm not? Yeah. I'm in the Hampton Roads area, and right now it's in the 60s, and I, I love that, personally. Nice. Now, um, one thing I've noticed is you tend to be, per, or tend to prefer being called Glenn, because I feel I get the impression you have um, a slight disconnect with the medical com- medical community on some. <laughs> well, yes, I, I'm, I'm a psychologist, not a medical doctor, but a good deal of the advice that I give or the education that I offer is not necessarily in concert with the best practices of my profession. So I ask people to call me Glenn and I don't offer this in the context of my license. I, really telling my personal story and educating people about how I overcame things. It turns out that as research is emerging on binge eating, that what I'm doing actually is starting to look like it's consistent with the best evidence, but mm-hmm. that doesn't mean it's yet consistent with the best practices. And I just, I want to be fair to my profession and not misrepresent them. So that's why. Well, it's interesting in what you say, and I'm, I might sidetrack a little because I don't know if you ever study any of these stuff like um, Robert Cialdini and um, yeah and influence and things of that sort. And I've talked to um, somebody who's a top level um, profiler, um, behavioral guy, um, Chase Hughes, and his job is getting people to be a trader within two hours for the military. So he's really, really heavy into the manipulation and, and things like that. And according to him, it's barely touched on in, um, universities, for psychology, mm-hmm. but yet it seems like that's something that would be tantamount to learn. There, there's an awful lot about being a clinical psychologist that you learn in the trenches more so than during school. I, I do have to say that they did t- teach me how to think. They taught me how to evaluate research. They taught me how to look at things statistically rather than anecdotally, which is the way that most people think. So I I learned a lot in school, but really the bulk of who I am in my heart with a patient comes from the, you know, thousands to 2000 people that I saw over the many years that I, that I work with people. Right. In school, did you practice actually talking to people or is that something you had to learn in practice? Well, in the later years of school, they, they do give you internships and externships and you do talk to people extensively. And that those are some of my most treasured experiences. I, okay. I, I remember a year at the hospital where for every hour that I was with the patient, I had an hour with the supervisor I could talk to. And you don't have that luxury later in your career. It's just too expensive. Mm-hmm. So that, that was fabulous. Okay. Excellent. Excellent. Well, I definitely wanted to cover that because I, I see some of what you're doing based on another interview matching with a technique called um, six words or the six word question. Mm-hmm. And that question essentially is 
Hmm. I understand you don't feel like you can do that, but what would it look like if you could? Yes. Yes. You're separating the two minds. You're, you're recognizing that feelings aren't facts that our lower evolutionary brain centers fire in response to a lot of the supersized stimuli that are presented to us these days. And that you can actually choose to step aside from that overstimulation and the firing of the reptilian brain to jump back up into your, your higher brain and make better decisions about who you are and who you want to be. For example, with food, what role do you want this food to play in your life? What kind of person do you want to become around chocolate or Doritos or whatever it is? Um, because feelings aren't facts. And even though every bone in your body might say, hand over that chocolate bar before I kill someone, you don't actually have to kill someone and you don't actually have to eat the chocolate. Feelings aren't facts. Isn't the science pushing against that a little bit right now in terms of um, the elephant and the rider and a lot of Jonathan Haidt and different things that are starting to show up when they're doing the uh, brain scans, I guess the uh, MRIs, on people determining that the emotion is making the decision and then we're justifying our decision after the fact? Well, that's the way that most people live their lives. And some of the early psychoanalysts observed that when they said that most people live their lives as if they were a riderless horse. And what's happening now scientifically is we're starting to have the physiological correlates that recognize how people run, run around living their lives wherever the river happens to take them. But that there's nothing in the science that says that we can't put a rider on that horse, just that we typically don't. Okay. Um, do you maybe work it with systems and things like that too? Um, as an example, I'm a runner and um, a good behavioral technique to help because it runs sometimes suck is to literally put the running clothes on and have like a habit set for yourself that if you get up, you have to put on the running clothes <laughs> and you have to at least go outside and get to the mailbox. If you don't want to run, then fine. You can go back. Yep. But it's very difficult when you've already done all that. You're already out in the cold. You're already at the mailbox. Well, you might as well keep going. Yes. Yes. What's the smallest possible step that you can take without any possibility of failure towards the successful direction you're looking to move in? And you're, you've got to trick your brain into not getting all involved in the overwhelming, um, painful experience that it's anticipating. You know, in the big mountain it has to climb. It's just what what's that next step? And then... If you execute that, there's a little behavioral chain. For me, I, I do CrossFit, and my only job is to walk to the gym and say hello to my friends. That's my mm. only job. If I walk to the gym and say hello to my friends, I will probably work out. But if I look at the board and I really don't feel like doing it, I can turn around. Okay. And you've made that deal with yourself. I've made that deal very successfully with myself, and 99% of the time I work out. Okay. I, I like that deal too, though, because you may look at the board and feel a niggle in a joint and realize that maybe I shouldn't work out today and you could actually get injured. And if you injure yourself working out, then now you're not working out for a couple of months. That That's true too. So there's a built in logical factor or, or safety valve. That that's very, that's very true too. Now um, from what I understand, you actually have a history um, throughout your life with um, exercise, bulimia, things like that. You, <laughs> yes. Hell, hell yes. 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 That's putting it mildly. Yeah. 
you want yeah, to drink? I, I, I would eat. I would eat. I could eat two whole pizzas and a box of muffins and six chocolate bars and a whole bunch of lattes um, within the course of an afternoon. And when I was a, when I was a kid, I, I'm six four. I'm reasonably muscular, and I could get away with it. And I it did not seem like a problem to me. It's, it seemed like I was just lucky. But the problem with that is that it ate up an awful lot of time, both to do the exercise and then to recover from the food because it takes an awful lot of digestion to put two whole pizzas through your body or muffins and all the things we talked about. And then as I got older, the problem was that I couldn't stop thinking about it. So I was married. I was working with patients in very high risk situations, by the way. I was working with suicidal people, I was mm. with couples right after an affair. And there are situations where you really have to be present. You know, be, being a psychologist isn't just an intellectual puzzle. You've got to be there, body, mind, and soul. And mm -hmm. you can tell if you're, if you're techniquing them. They know whether you really care or not and whether you're really there or not. And I wasn't always there. I was thinking about when can I get to the deli and dislodge my jaw and empty the contents of the delicatessen tray into it. Can you describe it? I mean, I, I, I don't want to dwell, but... You know, to help people, um, did you sit there and literally visualize that sandwich or visualize that food and smell it or feel? I'm, I'm, I'm wondering what symptoms you actually had. Um, you mean when, when my patients were talking to me and it was hard to be there? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I visualized what it would be like to take the first few bites, usually of chocolate and pizza. Usually of chocolate and pizza. I visualized where I would go. I visualize the guy who would smile at me and make me the pizzas. I I don't know if I was salivating. That's interesting. I don't know if I was salivating at that point, but I, I definitely did have a visual experience of it. Okay. And you wouldn't necessarily hear what they might have said at a second or something or miss part of a sentence? Well... I'm a, I'm a pretty smart guy, and even though multitasking is less than efficient, I was capable of intellectually responding to what they said. So it's not that I would miss the sentence, but I, I would miss the feeling behind the sentence. Okay. I, and I, I wouldn't be able to give the person the emotional response they really needed. Because, for example, people that are suicidal, I mm. found, and this, this isn't a lesson in suicidality, so if... Um, just for legal reasons, I have to say that. Sure, sure. But I found that if someone believed, if they really felt that there was one other person in the world that understood them, they wouldn't kill themselves. I mean, I, I never lost anybody. And That's fortunate. But I feel like I came close because I, I couldn't really give these people that emotional presence to help them feel understood all the time. And that's what really bothered me. And I felt like one day I would lose someone if I kept going like this. Not to mention the fact that the doctors told me I was going to die soon because my triglycerides were 1,100 or so. And, you know, every man in the family had had a heart attack at the time when they were 40. They thought I was going to be the youngest. So, yeah, it, was, it was disturbing. Was the food both um, a symptom and a punishment? And by that, I mean, you'd eat some, you feel guilty for eating it, and then say, well, I might as well eat more because I'm a pig or I'm this or that. Well... There is that voice of self-castigation that goes on inside of us. What I, I, I'm a proponent, I guess I haven't really told my whole story, but I'm a proponent of 
splitting up your constructive versus destructive thoughts into two separate logical entities in your head. Okay. Um, one's really driven by your reptilian brain or your lizard brain, mm -hmm. which is the target of food addiction. When, when industry creates these hyper palatable food like substances, you know, a concentration of starch and sugar and fat and oil and excitotoxins that's mm -hmm. engineered to hit your bliss point without giving you the nutrition to feel satisfied. They're really targeting your lizard brain. They don't want you thinking about this. They want that gut level fight or flight, um, eat, mate, or kill response of the, the lizard brain. And they want to light up the eat center. And I'm in favor of separating that. I, I actually called mine my inner pig. And separating that from your constructive self, which is where all your aspirations and goals and really it's where your identity lives and spirituality. Mm -hmm. And now when you understand that your thinking can be split like that, what you also start to understand is that the self-castigation, that punitive negative voice that seems to get so much louder after you made a mistake, it's mm -hmm. actually binge motivated. See, what it's trying to do is get you to feel too weak in character to resist the next binge. It's saying, you're pathetic, you're horrible, you're always going to be fat, you're going to be ruining your life and blowing up your best opportunities, but at least there's this one thing in life that can please you. Let's go mm -hmm. out and, have, and get some binge food. Yippee. For this reason, it's easier for the pig to prevail if you keep yelling at yourself. If you refuse to yell at yourself after a binge, and I'll tell you what I think you should do instead, but if you refuse to yell, yell at yourself, it's very difficult to keep binging. If you start to, instead of collecting evidence of failure and looking at how pathetic you were, if you say, well, Jay, I only had five cupcakes instead of 15. Hmm, okay, okay. A positive reinforcement loop versus a negative? Yeah, you, it's, I call it collecting evidence of success. And building oh, to reach back a little bit, you mentioned uh, industry, and I just wanted to ask you if you've ever read the book The uh, Dorito Effect. By, I haven't, um, but you mentioned it to me, and I'm salivating with curiosity to find out. What, <laughs> what you well, the, the basic thesis, or the the book, is essentially about the guy who created the nacho cheese flavor in Doritos, mm -hmm. um, who was an advertising executive, not really a food guy, mm -hmm. and what it was is kind of what you're talking about. And I think a lot of people accuse NutraSweet of being, but it would trigger the brain that it was a super tasty flavor that the brain would just salivate over, but never get any nutritional impact as you stated right. to um, complete or, or sate it. And I was just thinking that that lines up almost perfectly with what you were describing. Well, that's going on all over the industry. And it's combined with the impact of advertising and packaging. So, so, for example, I worked with a major food bar manufacturer. And I remember the VP sitting down and telling me that their most profitable insight was when they took the vitamins out of the bar and they put the money into the packaging instead. So they made the packaging look vibrant and colorful, which is a signal to our evolutionary brain that there's a diversity of nutrition available. The reason that... Mm. Right? The reason you want purple and yellow and green and all these vibrant colors in your salad is because it represents a diversity of nutrition. So what he was telling me was our most profitable insight, which is perfectly legal, is to fake them out. Right? Let's make them think that there is nutrition in there and take the nutrition out instead because it's too expensive and it interferes with the taste.
That goes on all over the industry. It's perfectly legal. Going back to Robert Cialdini, uh, Robert Cialdini talks about an example in nature where there are these two fish. There's a bigger fish and a smaller fish. And the big fish has a very symbiotic relationship with the smaller fish. It's a mutually beneficial relationship mm-hmm. because when it wants to have its teeth cleaned, which I could use my teeth clean now, by the way, I had a little bit of kelp before. Uh-huh. Um, when it wants to have its teeth cleaned, it opens its mouth and the, I'm sorry, the, the little fish goes into a bit of a dance and puts the bigger fish in a trance. And then the big fish opens its mouth wide and the little fish goes in and cleans the teeth. So the little fish gets a meal, the big te- fish gets its teeth cleaned, everybody wins. Mm-hmm. Well, enter a third fish. This is, a, this is another fish that looks like the little fish that does the dance. It can mimic the little fish's dance and put the big fish into a trance. But then this third fish is a parasite fish, and it comes in and it eats the big fish's mouth itself. It just takes big chunks out of the fish's mouth. Oh. Well, that's a parasite. And I, I think that there is a good deal of that going on in industry. When you're faking out our evolutionary brains into thinking that we can't survive without this, into thinking that the nutrition is there and, mm-hmm. then, and then not giving it to them, I think that's a parasitic relationship. And I, it's one of the reasons that I want people to stop being so ashamed and embarrassed about their difficulty with overeating and to start to get angry instead. Because I, I think we should be turning shame into anger. And it's the first step in opting out of like, consciously and logically opting out of the, um, the quicksand that the industry has you in. Isn't that a compounding effect too, though, that's um, essentially tied into our biology where, I mean, as hunter gatherers, we might not eat for a while. So we would have to binge whenever we could you know, a hundred thousand years ago, whatever you eat everything you could now, because you might not have food for three days, but yeah. now we have availability all the time and we're still wired to just eat, eat, eat until we're stuffed. Yes. Yes. And that, that's a, we call that the feast or famine cycle, which was a natural occurrence in our evolution. There were long periods of time. Where we might not be able to get food. And then suddenly we could, and we might need to stuff ourselves. That's the reason, by the way, that so many binge eaters have this experience where when they get too full, they're triggered to binge. You would think that getting too full would stop you from eating more, but unless you really understand that getting too full is a signal that food is available, and so you'd better hoard it. This is also mm-hmm. why mm-hmm. it's also why binge eaters tend to have a history of overdieting or over restricting. And why, so, so they're, they're not really just addicted to binging and overeating, they're addicted to the feast and famine cycle. And the solution, in my estimation, and m- most professionals would agree with this, I think, is not a, so if you have a binge, a solution is not to just drink juices for a week, that actually makes things worse. The solution is to show your body that there's a regular, reliable, sustainable source of nutrition and calories available. So you should have breakfast the day after a binge, even if you don't feel like it. Okay, so you're never wanting. You're settling your body down, saying, "No, don't worry about. It. There will be food. Just yeah. chill." And we, and we, I mean, unless you're in a third world country, we really live in a society where it's not necessary to go for long periods of time without without food. Yeah. Now, how do you feel about um, the argument of you can eat better just by shopping on the perimeters of the store? I think it's true. Okay, and things like that. Do you think that 
it can help with binging to shop more, I'll say like Europeans, because they tend to buy their meal of the day every day almost or whatever they go Mm -hmm. grab some fresh, you know, some produce, a little bit of meat, whatever it is. And then they bring it home and they prepare it. So it's fresher, but it's also kind of the only food in the house. Mm -hmm. I, I think that that can help. What I like to teach people though. so, So all of the research does indicate that environmental factors have a strong impact on our mindless eating. And so if, you know, if you put the, M&Ms in a bowl and put it in the drawer as opposed to keeping it on the counter, you're going to have less M&Ms. If you use smaller bowls, you're going to wind up having smaller portions. There are a variety of environmental factors you can manipulate to influence the mindless eating that you do to be better for you. But it's not really possible to control our environmental stimulation entirely. I mean, you can walk out of a McDonald's and see another McDonald's across the street these days. And wherever you go, you're going to have supersized stimuli presented to you. There's a fast food corner everywhere. It's it's socially acceptable to slowly kill yourself with food. It's very, very difficult to eliminate the stimulation. So what you want to do instead is cultivate a confidence that, one, you know what healthy eating is and healthy eating isn't. So you draw very bright lines between healthy and unhealthy eating. So you don't have to make decisions over the course of the day. If I say I will never eat chocolate Monday to Friday, I'm in much better shape than if I say I avoid chocolate 90% of the time. Mm. If I say I avoid chocolate 90% of the time, every time I'm in front of a chocolate bar, I have to make another decision. And all the research on willpower says that decisions wear down your willpower. That's why you can can game it. You'll say, um, oh, I'm going to eat chocolate for this week and then won't eat it for the next nine weeks. <laughs> Game yeah. like yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. So, yeah, I, there is a lot of studies about willpower and how it uh, you fatigue through the day because you actually have to apply willpower all the time. It could yeah. be um, not running that red light or doing that turn or whatever. So that's, that's interesting. Well, that's, what, that's why I tell people that character trumps willpower. Sometimes I'll ask people a question in two different ways. I'll say, do you think you could become, do you think that you could give up chocolate entirely? And they'll go, absolutely not. No, I couldn't do that. I say, well, do you think you become the kind of person who doesn't eat chocolate? And they go, hmm, maybe I could do that. <laughs> that's a six word question almost. Yeah. Well, and the difference is that we actually integrate character rules into our psyches all the time without knowing it. I'll give you an example. Suppose you go to a diner and there's a $20 bill on the table because the waitress didn't see your tip. Mm-hmm. Nobody would see you take it. There's no video camera. Nobody's up front. The waitress says, I'll be right back. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go get your menu. Well, 99% of the people I talk to about this situation say, I would never take that $20 bill. And I'll say, why? And they'll say, because I'm not a thief. That waitress worked hard for her money. That's not right. I'll say, does it take you any willpower not to make take that 20 bills? No, it's not even a decision. It's not even an option. I'll say, why? Hmm. I'll say, well, it's not in my character. As a matter of character, I have decided that there are certain tempting situations that are not even an option for me, and I don't have to execute willpower. Character trumps willpower. If I'm the kind of person who never eats chocolate, 
then I've made all my chocolate decisions. It's just the kind of person I am. And that's, that's the real trick to overcoming overeating. And you don't, you don't have to give up things entirely to do that. You can say, I only have it on the weekends. You can say, I always have six servings of fruit and vegetables a day. But you want to try to make it part of your character and become the kind of person that you've always wanted to be around that food. So that makes me think of something, or I don't know, maybe I spin out in my mind, but I was thinking about the, the waitress and the $20 bill and a mitigating factor there would be, that's another person. You don't want to harm that other person. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if you've ever heard this. I don't know if I'm saying it right. It was uh, Jordan Peterson. I thought he had a good point with it. And it was treat yourself like somebody you care for. Yeah. And he pointed out, and this is why I'm drawing a parallel, that we tend to treat others around us like our pets or our wives or whatever, you know, a certain way that we want to make sure they're okay. And especially if they're sick, we make sure, you know, like children, we get them their medicine on time, run the full course of what the doctor says, things like that. Well, we need to treat ourselves that way. Yeah. How do we redirect it onto ourselves? Yeah. Yeah, we do. We do. And if, if you... Think about how you would treat a little kid. You know, if I, if I, I remember when my niece was about seven, she wanted to ride her bike all the way up a hill in one go. And it was really clear to me that if she didn't make it, I wasn't going to say, oh my God, you're pathetic. You're never going to get that done. That's, that's horrendous. And when I would say, let's go back down to the bottom. Let's visualize ourselves on top. Maybe you need more of a running start. Maybe I can push you to get started. Maybe you need to eat a little something beforehand. And let's just go do it again, honey. But when people fall down, when adults fall down, they, they torture themselves. And um, you know, what we really need to do is commit with perfection. So we need, we need that level of commitment and forgive ourselves with dignity. By the way, most people are frightened of committing with perfection. Most people think they should pursue progress, not perfection. But that's actually a trap when it comes to dealing with any type of a toxic pleasure. Because what it really means that I'm going to, what, if I'm just going to pursue progress, not perfection, means I'm going to try for a little while until I don't feel like it anymore. I mean, could you imagine getting married and telling your fiance, I'm pretty sure that I'm never going to sleep with anybody else, but there are a lot of attractive people out there. And so, you know, progress, not perfection. <laughs> yeah, it might not go over well. Might not go over so well. But yet you do build in a a forgiveness or a mechanism to continue and keep going because there are those whose mindset would be, I broke, I'm a failure. What's the point? Yeah. That's when you need to forgive yourself with dignity. There's a purpose to psychological pain. It's not, not like you have to entirely avoid feeling guilty or feeling a little ashamed it, but it's a similar purpose to the physical pain that you feel if you touch a hot stove and there are disorders, for example, where children don't feel pain. And those children very rarely live past five years old because they don't have the attention-getting mechanism to prevent themselves from harming themselves. And psychologically, it's the same way. You need to be able to feel a little pain. If, if you made a rule for yourself and you made a commitment, that's sacred. And you don't want to just blow it off. So you want to feel some guilt or shame, but only a little bit, only enough to get your attention so you can focus on what went wrong, remember where the target is, ask yourself, do you need to adjust the target at all? How do you do it better next time? And then let it go. 
all the perseveration on the guilt and shame after that is it's uh, it's binge motivated. Yeah, this really there's definitely a, a childini quality to this too. Like um, handing you the piece of paper to write down your appointment. Mm-hmm. So it, it it's funny, and I, I I love all these parallels because I think the whole influence and persuasion and persuasion is very important in our lives, and we need to do it to ourselves. Do Do you want to explain that example? Because I'm not sure that the audience would. Oh uh, sure, it's they did a study, and I don't know all the numbers, so I'm going to make them up as I go. But essentially, I think it was in England, the National Health Service had problems. There were people were not showing up for their next appointment. And the standard procedure is the receptionist or whomever would write down on a piece of paper what the time and the date of the appointment, hand it to the people, and they would leave. In order to fight it, they flipped this and they would hand a blank um, appointment slip to the customer and they would say, when the appointment was, and they would say, you will be able to make that right. And then they would write them, have the customer patient, write it out themselves. And the numbers went up by a high margin of their actually like a ridiculous margin. Yeah. Yeah. Very, very high. Um, an, another variant was um, dealing with uh, taxes. Instead of going around trying to shame people about taxes, they sent out surveys saying, you realize that nine out of 10 of your neighbors are paying taxes. Mm-hmm. It, all of this stuff, I think, kind of ties a little bit into um, similar principles. Would would you say that's fair? Yeah, we're, we're talking about that all centers around Childini's principle of commitment and consistency, which really is people's natural tendency to define themselves in terms of the habitual behaviors that they've that they've committed to. I remember an example with restaurants that were having trouble with people showing up for the reservations and they changed the way that they phrased the request. Mm-hmm. One request was um, please call if you please call if you can't make the reservation. The other way that they phrased it was will you call if you can't make it and they required the person to make that commitment and the second phrase wound up with a much higher show rate because people then had made a commitment and they said, well, I'm not a liar. I have to, right. live, I have to live up to my word. And it's the same thing with food. If you make those commitments and you make them consciously and purposely, and it's a bright line so that there's no ambiguity about whether you're doing it or not, then, um, th- then that ties into your desire to be a consistent character, a consistent personality in the world. And it, it connects directly to your self-esteem and your self-identity, and you don't you don't let it drop as easily as you would if it weren't as clear and committed. Now, moving moving forward on that, um, you don't really recommend any particular specific diet or plan, correct? I don't. I mean, I I have personal feelings about what I think hominid should be eating. But I leave that for everybody else to determine because I'm not a medical doctor. I'm not a dietitian or nutritionist. I'm just a guy who's read a lot about food. And I, I, I'm a psychologist. My, my focus has been on the mental components. But there's another reason is that I've discovered that there is a trick of mind that the, our reptilian brain plays on us. If we give it an identity, we call it the pig or the food monster what the food monster will do with anybody else's diet is say, well, that guru's diet doesn't seem to be 
just right for us. It's pretty good, but it's not just right. We're going to have to keep binging until we find another one. Yippee, let's go, let's go get some more. <laughs> I, I call it the confuse and conquer strategy. And the, the food monster is always saying the grass is greener on the other side. And it never allows you to really settle into a diet that you believe in. I think it's perfectly fine to, if you have a favorite diet, to read it. But you want to own the principles yourself. At this point in your life, probably if you've listened this far into the interview, the odds are that you've read a bunch of diets, you have a lot of nutritional ideas, and you have a pretty good idea what you need to do to take care of yourself. And I usually ask people to just, look, don't worry about losing weight right away. What if you chose one rule to cover your single most difficult trigger food or behavior hmm. and you just got started? You know, like I, I know a guy who lost 150 pounds by starting with, I'll never go back for seconds. He basically ate at fa fast food restaurants all, all day long, but he never went back for seconds. Hmm. You get a little momentum going. You see how this game is played. You listen to all of your, I call them pig squeals all the irrational reasons that your lizard brain says you should break this rule. And then you start to have that separation between your constructive and destructive self. And mm -hmm. you this extra microseconds at the moment of impulse to remember the person that you've committed to being. That's funny. I, I, I love um, drawing parallels to running, but that's such a easy thing because I could see where if you make commitment to one thing, and then you successfully achieve that one thing. Like, let's say I'm going to um, walk until I can run one mile. Mm -hmm. And then when I run that one mile, well, now, you know, I, I start doing this for a bit and I say, well, let me try for two. And what you're describing there is if you can meet that one commitment, that that success can maybe even propel you into saying, well, you know what? I really don't need to have two sides either. I stopped having seconds. Now maybe I don't need a double portion of uh, potatoes. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So it's kind of a self-empowerment. Mm -hmm. it, it's particularly important when it comes to food issues because when people get overtaken, see, these foods have a life of their own. So there's this psychological process where people start to get involved with binging and beating themselves up and then the pig is stronger and gets you to binge more. But there's a real physiological addiction that's going on because of the food-like substances that the food industry is giving you. And they, they really have a life of their own. There were no chocolate bars and Doritos on the Savannah. We, we just didn't have that. And yeah. so we are, we're very prone to forgetting about the foods that nature had to offer and getting overly involved. And that leads to a sense of despair leads to a sense of despair and hopelessness. And so rather than embracing a whole diet, I like people to just recover their sense of power and enthusiasm and hope. And from that, from that vantage point, I find it's possible for them to follow a diet when they never could before. Okay. And does this kind of fall into that power of habit too? Like if they're doing it long enough, then it just becomes more natural and more of a habit and they don't have to fight to do it. One of the interesting things about addiction is that you're never really standing still. You're always either reinforcing the addiction or extinguishing it. So most people will hear their inner food monster say, you can just start tomorrow, as if it was going to be just as easy to start tomorrow as it were today. 
But the truth is, if you indulge today, you are reinforcing those pathways and making them stronger. You're going to be in more of a hole tomorrow. You might not weigh anymore, but the neural pathways are going to be stronger and you're going to have a harder time getting out of that addiction, not an easier time. If you're in a hole, the best thing to do is to stop digging. That makes sense. And reinforcing the neural pathways. I didn't even think about that. I do know that I quit smoking in 2005 and I actually have forgotten what it felt like to smoke mm-hmm. over the period of time. So I, I, it doesn't really, I don't sweat it. I don't worry about it or anything else. And I'm wondering if you can achieve that same type of result over enough time of just reinforcing, reinforcing, reinforcing and sort of changing your, your tastes almost. If you asked me seven years ago, if I'd ever be able to give up chocolate, I would have walked out of the room. It just, it just seemed impossible. Um, now, if I look at a chocolate bar, it looks like a big bag of chemicals to me. I've got no interest. I'm not tortured by cravings. I'm not thinking about it all day. My mind adjusted to think of other things. There's a, there's a phenomenon called downregulation and upregulation in the nervous system. What happens if you present a supersized stimulus to your nervous system like, and a chocolate bar is a supersized stimulus because, like I said, we didn't have chocolate bars on the on the savanna. Sure. Your nervous system will downregulate its response. It's kind of like when I was in graduate school, I slept in an apartment that was underneath the subway, and the first week I had no idea how I'd ever get any sleep, and by the yeah. by the tenth day I couldn't even hear the subway going by because your body starts to say this is a regular occurrence you don't really have to respond with such vigor. You should respond less and less and less. If you have a chocolate bar every day, I'm sorry. Uh, no, I was going to say, to take your analogy further, um, did you get to the point when you stayed somewhere else that was quiet, you couldn't sleep because you needed some sort of noise? <laughs> <I don't, laughs> that's funny. No one ever asked me that. I don't, I don't think that I did. I don't remember. It was, that was 30 years ago. I don't remember that. <laughs> okay. Uh, I, I, I do remember, though, that when I went to a different apartment that, and then I went back and stayed at the old apartment about a month later that yeah. it suddenly, I could hear it again. So the body upregulates and downregulates depending upon yeah. how often the stimulus is presented. That's important because if you have a chocolate bar every day, an apple is not going to taste very sweet. And over no. time, you're going to feel like you need that chocolate bar in order to just feel normal. But if you stop having the chocolate bar, your inner pig is going to tell you you're going to be tortured with this forever, but it's not true. Over the course of a month or two, your taste buds regenerate, the neural pathways start to resensitize. And a couple of months later, the apple tastes delicious to you. I can tell you personally, that's the pathway that I took. It took me a couple of years, but I started making rules that kind of cut out a lot of these industrial foods and I would replace them with, um, oh, for example, when I stopped eating chocolate, I started having smoothies with kale juice and spinach and bananas. And mm. at first I did it because it seemed like a good idea and I thought it sucked. I mean, I really, mm. I really thought it sucked. But over time I started to crave the kale juice because I got that energy and you know vitamins and micronutrients in the way that nature intended. And I didn't really need the chocolate. And, and so what I've actually found now as I've gotten more and more and more of the industrial foods out of my system is that I can taste subtle differences between different species of apples. Like, you know, the delicious mm, apples okay. taste different than the gala apples to me. And I, I look forward to when a certain species of tomatoes 
his his like the early girl tomatoes. I love those in particular, and I can really taste the difference. My 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 neurology has yeah makes readjusted. Yeah, so all right. So to go ahead and um, wrap things up, what is one piece of advice you can give that everybody could take, not tomorrow but today, and move forward? Well, I think the thing that I mentioned before about finding one food rule that addresses your single most difficult trigger or food or food behavior. Uh, So for example, that might be, I'll never eat standing up again, or I will always take a breath before I go back for seconds, or I'll always have two glasses of water in the morning, or I want in front of the TV, or could be something very specific to a food. So I'll only have one piece of bread at a restaurant, whatever it is, wherever you're getting carried away, wherever you know that you're making trouble for yourself, see if there's one rule you could state that defines the role that you want that food or environment to play in your life, how you want to be around that. And then make sure that it's unambiguous. There's no fuzzy edges around it. If I followed you around all day, I could clearly tell whether you did it or you didn't. And then listen very carefully for your inner food monster, your inner pig, whatever you want to call it, who try to talk you out of it. And then what I like to do is say, my pig wants that. I don't, I don't eat pig slop. I don't let farm animals tell me what to do. As crude as that sounds, it's a very primitive way to wake myself up. And then I remember who I am and who I want to be. And my life gets better. I can make those choices. Well, excellent. Now, where can people follow you and find out more stuff. I understand you have materials available, things like that. Can you share? Yeah. Well, I'll give you a free copy of the book in Kindle Nook or PDF format. It's a very popular book, by the way. We have over 600,000 readers. Oh, nice. And you can get it at neverbingeagain.com if you click the big red free bonus section. But you get two more things if you do that for free. One of them is a set of food plan templates for any particular diet. These are starter templates. I want people to take their own responsibility for their own set of rules. But whether you're low carb or high carb or macrobiotic or ketogenic or point counter or a calorie counter, there is a food plan template for you. Beyond that, I know that this is a weird thing when we talk about it in theory. Eric and I have been shooting the SHIT going back and forth uh, about this. And I know it sounds weird. Wait, wait a minute. This guy's a psychologist and he's got a pig inside of him. And, um, but it works. And it's actually a very compassionate approach. So I recorded a whole bunch of sessions and I distribute them on my blog and via email. So if you sign up for the reader bonuses, we'll get you a whole bunch of those recordings to listen to for free. And there's enough there between the book and the recordings and the food plan templates that you don't ever have to pay me a dime and you can recover. If you want more, if you want more personal help, then you'll also be led to the coaching programs that we have to implement this on your own. But um, start with the free stuff, neverbingeagain.com, big red button. Very cool. And do you, are you on social media or anywhere else you want to plug? Yeah, there are links to our Facebook forum and Facebook business page and Instagram and all that good stuff at the bottom of neverbingeagain.com. So sign up for the reader bonuses and you'll get to everything. Excellent. I'm actually going to do that tonight because I can always read things and get good information. Oh, good. And thank you so much for coming on. 
Thank you for having me. This was uh, this was different, actually. This was much more of a conversation than I'm used to. Right? They usually just point the microphone at me and say talk. So. <laughs> well, good. I hope it was fun. It was fun. A lot of fun. Challenging. Now, tonight's adventure into the unknown. Shut up and sit down. Hey, it's Sarge. And Frenzy. From the Sarge Approved Podcast. Uh, If you're not familiar, the Sarge Approved Podcast has a guest every episode. Featuring uh, people like actors, comedians, uh, survival experts, authors, martial arts experts. Basically a whole gamut of badass people. Yes. And you can check out all our episodes on all the podcast platforms, iTunes, Spreaker, uh, uh, Stitcher, Google Play Music, iHeartRadio. And you can check us out on all our social media, Facebook. Instagram, Twitter, all the things. It's all at Sarge Approved. Yep. Check it out, and we hope you enjoy it. Bye.